0: this difficult passage, cause our hearts to be tender before your word and build our faith. We ask that you would give us spiritual eyes and ears so we wouldn't just be hearers of your word, but doers of it and help us to consider what it means truly to follow you. By your spirit, open this gospel to us. Help us to see Jesus and give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In light of recent allegations of bullying between two NFL behemoths, these are like giant people. Okay, they would be bigger than anybody in here. It wouldn't even be close. We've had NFL players here. Their shoulders are like where the tops of your heads are. These people are like made in a lab. They're giant. But I thought, since this accusation of bullying came up, that I would weigh in on the issue. And while I believe with all my heart that we should protect those who cannot protect themselves, I believe our culture continues to promote a victim mentality, whereby nearly any situation is obsessively considered bullying, whether it's a high school football team that scores too many points against its opponent, or two fully grown 300-pound men who play professionally in an aggressively competitive and combative sport for a living. Have you ever thought of how much better the world would be if we could get rid of bullying? Don't hold your breath. Probably not going to happen. Bullies aren't going away. They never have. They never will. Bullies are a fact of life and have been since the beginning of time. And the sooner we learn to deal with them by assuming some responsibility for what happens to us in life, the sooner we stop the bullies from doing their damage. I have some experience with bullying growing up. I played sports, all of them, all the time. And I was always the smallest, shortest, littlest kid on the team, always. And I got teased and mocked, and every opposing team would try to go after the little kid, especially in basketball, not a sport known for short people. And I remember one game, I was a freshman in high school, when the other team started laughing when I walked out onto the court. I remember my mom would have to take up the shoulder straps on my uniform because it hung down so far. And they were laughing, and they said, his dad must be the coach. He wasn't. And I remember in the second quarter, the guy I was guarding just reached out and knocked off my glasses and told me to get off the court. Now, lacking maturity, freshman in high school, I responded, perhaps, emotionally. <laughs> well, I, I may have broken his nose. <laughs> the first and only technical foul of my short basketball career. It was also my highest-scoring game ever. Warning to those of you who pick on the little guys, we have a chip on our shoulder. Remember, Napoleon was my height. (laughs) He wrecked like 17 countries. (laughs) Okay, bullying sometimes has consequences. But seriously, this past October was Anti-Bullying Awareness Month, and actually, I think that's a good thing. Too often, bullied children feel isolated and alone, feel like they have no one to talk to, no one to confide in, and I applaud those uh, who are calling attention to that problem, offering support and encouragement to those who are on the receiving end. In fact, my sister is a guidance counselor in Jacksonville, Florida, and she's authored an anti-bullying curriculum that's now being used throughout North Florida, and I say, good for her. However, no amount of awareness or attention, I believe, will put an end to bullying. Because bullies come in all sizes, ages, shapes, colors, nationalities, and they all have one thing in common. They lift themselves up by stepping on others. You think about you know the big name bullies. Adolf Hitler, Saddam Hussein, Osama bin Laden. or for that matter, Goliath. What were they if they're not bullies with great power? Think of violent gang members. What are they if not bullies with guns? Think of people who file malicious lawsuits. What are they if not bullies with lawyers? Think of road rage and aggressive drivers. What are they if not bullies with cars? I could go on, but you get the point. Bullies are everywhere, and most of us will run into them at one point or another in our lives. The bullies that most of us will encounter are everyday people who feel the need to put others down in order to exalt themselves. And there's always been people like that. And you may not like that, I certainly don't, but that's life. To stop bullying entirely, you'd have to change human nature. and I don't believe that's possible. Bullying is pervasive uh, within the human race and human history. Does that mean we don't try to change things? No, it doesn't. But what it does mean is we have to approach the problem of bullying with understanding that it is fundamentally A heart problem. Ultimately, bullying isn't a result of bad parenting or a poor environment, although they can certainly help to create a bully. But ultimately, it's a heart problem. I think the prophet Jeremiah uh, said it best in Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We live in a fallen world full of fallen, broken people. And we'll never stop bullying entirely because the problem is common to humanity. It's part of our fallen nature. And I bring all that up because today's passage is about a bully. This bully's name is Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas. Herod, in our story from Matthew 14, is one of several with the same name in the New Testament. Herod the Great was king of Judah when Christ was born, and he is remembered for ordering the baby boys around Bethlehem slaughtered, lest there be a rival to his throne from the newborn king. Later, he ordered two of his own sons killed because they thought he might they might uh, overthrow him. Definitely a bully. Herod Philip, called Philip in Luke 3, Herod Agrippa I, who died after giving this great self-glorifying speech in Acts 12, And then Herod Agrippa II, who's mentioned in Acts 25, before whom Paul had to appear. They're all named in Scripture, and they're all bullies. And now we have Herod Antipas, the tetrarch of Galilee after Herod the Great's death. Now Herod Antipas, according to some accounts, is the ablest of all of Herod the Great's sons. And yet Jesus called him that fox in Luke 13 basically pointing out his weakness, that he had a lack of dignity and true power. Now to understand this story, you have to understand that his half-brother, Herod Philip, it's kind of like George Foreman, all of his sons had the first name of Herod. And so the Bible usually uses the second name to distinguish them. But Herod Philip has married his niece, Herodias. And Herod Antipas falls for Herodias, even though he's already married to the king of Petrus. He falls for Herodias while visiting his brother. And he casts care to the wind, he pursues her hand in marriage as a wedding gift, he throws out his own wife, the daughter of the king of Petrus, even though this results eventually in a costly war with Petrus, which he was losing until the Romans stepped in and stopped it. But since Herod Philip's kingdom was the least desirable, and Herodias, being a woman of towering ambition, consents to the proposal of Herod Antipas, she essentially divorces her uncle in order to marry her other uncle. And so this truly dysfunctional family returns to the kingdom thinking everything's just going to be swell. And then John the Baptist shows up. And he becomes a thorn in their side. Some New Testament scholars suggest that Herod had actually invited John to the palace with a view of gaining popularity amongst the masses in Galilee. But while there, John doesn't cut Herod any slack at all. He rebukes him for his breach of the divine law. In fact, the laws of Leviticus, the Ten Commandments, and all the other laws concerning adultery all condemn Herod for what he's doing. And John had simply preached that to Herod. And Herod, we're told in this passage, hated John for having brought that not only to his attention, but to everyone's attention. And so we begin by seeing pain and loss for King Herod. Pain and loss for King Herod. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew 14. If you remember, over the last several months, we've looked at Matthew 11, 12, and 13, Highlighting the majesty of Christ in Matthew 11, highlighting the character of Christ in contrast to uh, his opponents in Matthew 12, and highlighting the parables of Jesus in Matthew 13. We also saw at the end of Matthew 13, as Tom taught you last week, there's a major shift in Jesus' teaching ministry. Because beginning at the end of Matthew 13, we see more and more throughout the gospel a rejection of Jesus' ministry. (coughs) Excuse me. And it's a rejection of Jesus' ministry pretty much by everyone, not just the Pharisees, but also by the crowds uh, who are following him. And so this passage, we open with the account of the death of John the Baptist. And in the wake of the crowd's disappointment with Jesus, it's not the kind of the Messiah that they're looking for. In the wake of his rejection in Nazareth by his own townspeople, we've now come to Matthew 14, beginning at verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. So first of all, we see how Herod came to hear of Jesus' ministry and what his response to that ministry is. We learn that Herod's conscience is bothering him. But it's not bothering him in a saving way. He's guilty of things, and he's inwardly bothered by these things, but he doesn't admit them openly, and he's certainly not bothered enough to seek a Savior. But there are several things at work here, all which demonstrate pain and loss in Herod's life. He has a seared conscience. He's racked with guilt. He's controlled by fear, fear of extended family, fear of public opinion, and fear of those like Jesus and John the Baptist who appear to be more popular than he is and appear to have more power than he has, and can do miraculous things that he can't do. And so Herod responds to this news with fear. Now he's a very superstitious person, and he fears that John the Baptist has been raised from the dead to continue to hound him, and so he's worried. And he announces to those around him, this is John the Baptist, he's risen from the dead, that's why there's all these miraculous powers. Now it's interesting, Jesus really hasn't done very much in terms of miracles yet. That's about to come. We've just had a long series of parables, and now we're about to get a long series of miracles. And this is sort of the bridge between those two sections. But Herod says, this is just John the Baptist. He's come back to annoy me, to torment me, to hound me. Now Herod knew that he was wrong to murder John the Baptist. He knew he was wrong to take the foolish vow that he made during his own birthday party. And that continues to nag at his conscience. When he hears word of Jesus' ministry, his superstitious response is to think, John's here, he's going to come after me again. And Herod hated John before, and he surely hates him even more now. That's often the response of people who are in the grip of sin. When someone speaks to them, about their sin, having only their best interest at heart, the response is often to hate that person. That's exactly what Herod did. In fact, we're told in the passage that what Herod wanted to do was to kill John immediately. You see what a weak man he is. He said the reason he didn't kill John right away was afraid of what all the people would think. So he did not what he thought was right, but what he thought was expedient. And there's the key to the heart of Herod. He's not moved by what's right. He's moved by that which is expedient, that which will give him favor amongst the people. He feared there might be some sort of rebellion because John was popular among the masses. And so if he killed him, there'd be some sort of uprising. Um, So instead, he throws John in prison. And yet John's words continue to haunt Herod, don't they? I mean, long after God's witnesses are gone, their witness remains. Long after God's messengers are gone, their message still speaks. And so when Herod hears of Jesus' ministry, he immediately remembers John. He remembers what John had said. He remembers what he had done to John. His conscience is bothering him. His guilt is beginning to consume him. And so he reacts to Jesus with the same kind of fear and anxiety that he had with John. Herod wants power and respect and... And he's losing it to these no-name preachers and prophets like Jesus and John. And that infuriates him. He acts rashly. Guilt overwhelms him. Emotional pain describes him. And his heart just keeps getting harder and harder and harder. That's one type of pain and loss. Another type of pain and loss is presented to us in the life and death of John the Baptist. His is much more obvious. He speaks the truth, and he's killed for it. So turn with me to verse 6, pain and loss for John the Baptist. Here we have the account of John's death. Starting at verse 6, when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry because of his oaths and his guests. He commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. Sweet girl. Just a word of advice to all the young men in the congregation today. Don't date women who cut off your head. Okay? It's just bad policy. But seriously, first thing we learn here is Christians can't expect your rewards in this life. We must put our hope in things to come. Matthew is recounting for us how Herod comes to murder John the Baptist and began with a birthday party. There's nothing wrong with birthday parties. But this is an out-of-control affair. It's an affair in which women are not normally invited. And it's instructive, then, that this young girl is brought in to dance. And again, it shows you the kind of household that Herod uh, had. And with Herod getting drunk and his lips uh, saying things that he would have been wiser not to say, his guard is down, and this party becomes an occasion for great evil and sin. The party itself was not the problem. The attitude of those involved was the problem. The things went on there that were inappropriate and so Herodias' daughter comes out and dances for the party even though in that day and time and culture women uh, weren't even supposed to be present at the party. And so she extracts from Herod an oath promising her the head of John the Baptist. And so John is finally executed as a result of this fleeting promise made by a drunken monarch to a dancing girl. What a dishonorable end for a faithful prophet of God. We're stunned we get to the end of the passage. You get to verse 11. You can't believe that God would have John's life end this way. Your faithful servant of the Lord, imprisoned for months, beheaded at the request of a dancing girl. Lord, surely this isn't what you intended. Surely this must be a mistake. But as the great commentator Bishop J.C. Ryle reminds us, God's children must not look for their reward in this world. If there's ever a case of godliness unrewarded in this life, it's John the Baptist. Here's a man who deserved, if anyone deserved, the reward of faithful service. And yet his life ends in such a terrible way. But even in this, we learn that our hope must be placed on the city which has foundations. And that's where John's hope was. And oh, Surely this must have been the most disappointing of ways to end his ministry. I can imagine. Not so much the martyrdom, but the imprisonment in the last months of his life. It must have been terribly frustrating for him. He would have wanted to be preaching repentance, preparing the way for Christ, and here he is confined and finally executed. And yet God's plan is perfect. John had put his hope on things to come. Again, Bishop Ryle says, let all true Christians remember their best things are yet to come. Let us count it not strange if we have sufferings in this present time. It is a season of trials and testing. You just heard this morning of a number of prayer requests regarding missions, regarding families, regarding ministries. It is a season of trials and testing. We're still in school. We're in the trial school. We're in the testing school. We're learning patience, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, none of which we would learn if we had our best life now. But there is an eternal holiday yet to come. And for this, we need to wait because it will make amends for all pain, it will bring rewards for all suffering, and it will amply replace all our losses. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen." for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now getting your head chopped off and served on a platter may not sound to you like light momentary affliction, but it surely did to John, who woke up to the dazzling glory of God in the heavenly realms. Many of you, many of you are facing trials, testing, afflictions this morning. And I'm guessing you probably don't want to hear them described as light and momentary. However, the sound of an eternal weight of glory has the ring of good news. And that's because the message of this passage is that in the middle of pain and loss, our hope must be on those eternal things. Think about it, what a motley crew of characters we have in this story. They provide a sad glimpse into the high life of antiquity, as well as what way too many people are like today. We have Herod with his guilty conscience. There's Herodias, this wicked, vengeful woman. There's her daughter, already corrupted at a young age by her evil mother. There's all the sensuous friends of Herod. And against them all is John the Baptist who everyone knows to be upright, outspoken, and courageous man. There is, however, one character we haven't talked about yet. He doesn't enter into the specific action of the story, although he's the most important person of all. It's Jesus himself, who's mentioned in the first verse and the last verse, where we see pain and loss for King Jesus. Pain and loss for King Jesus, verses 1 and 12. We read there, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and then in verse 12, his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. As I told my class the other day, any passage that both starts and ends with Jesus probably has something to teach us about Jesus. Several commentators have pointed out that every time someone is scandalized or offended by a person in the Gospels, That person is always Jesus. In fact, we just saw that at the end of Matthew 13, verse 57. It says, and they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and his own household. And we have a good example of it here. Neither the citizens of Nazareth, nor Herodias, nor her daughter, nor the drunken guests of Herods, are offended by King Herod, because they're all like him to one degree or another nor they are offended by each other for the same reason. Sinners like other sinners because they feel at home with them. And if their consciences truly bother them for some evil act, they can always point to another sinner who's a lot worse. You know, it's comforting to have a really bad, evil guy like King Herod around. Because if it teaches you nothing, I'm not as bad as him. But you don't get help from other sinners. Other sinners don't enable you to live righteously or to live an upright life or to be obedient. They don't provide salvation for your sins. Only Jesus does that. And only Jesus can. And all of this means in the final analysis, the real contrast in this story is not between Herod and John the Baptist, as interesting as that is, but it's between King Herod and King Jesus. You have to ask the question what happened to King Herod? A few years later, when Herod's brother, Herod Agrippa I, the Herod of Acts 12, had been appointed king over the former territory of Philip, whom he stole the wife from, Herodias, the woman of towering ambition, pestered her husband and said, You need to go to Rome and get made a king too. And so he does that, he goes to Rome and asks the emperor to make him a king. Unfortunately, Herod Agrippa, his brother, wrote to the emperor Caligula and said, Herod's had treasonous dealings with the Parthians. And so instead of being made a king, he is in fact deposed and banished to Gaul, where he died in poverty. Now think of the contrast. Herod did what those in power do. He used his power to preserve his power, but in the end he lost it all and died a pauper's death. Jesus lays his power aside to die for his people, but today he rules in glory and will reign forever. Herod's a petty king, but he looked the part. He looked kingly. Jesus is the king of kings, but he looked like a humble Galilean peasant. Deceiving if you only look at the outward appearance. But if you look beyond the appearance to who Jesus really was, and you listen very closely to what Jesus really said, you'll find yourself agreeing with John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus when he said in John 1, he saw Jesus coming and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God, John trusted in Christ, and stood for righteousness. He died for it. But now John is with Jesus and will rule with him one day, along with all who willingly confess Christ as Lord and Savior. But we still have a problem here, don't we? The problem is this. This story reeks of injustice. It just reeks of injustice. I mean, let's face it. John dies because Herod lusts. A good man is murdered while the bad man parties on. A man of God is killed while a man of passion is winking at his niece. Is this how God rewards his anointed? Is this how he honors the faithful? Is this how he crowns the chosen? With a dark dungeon and a shiny blade? The injustice is too much to take. It's too much for us, too much for John. Even before Herod reached his verdict, he's asking questions. His concerns are outnumbered only uh, by the number of times he paces back and forth in his cell. When he finally had a chance to get a message to Jesus, his inquiry was one of despair. We read it in Matthew 11. It says, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Note what motivates John's question. It's not the dungeon it's not the threat of death. It's a problem of unmet expectations. In fact, John's in deep trouble, and Jesus is conducting business as usual. Is this what messiahs do when trouble comes? Is this what God does when his followers are in a jam? And Jesus' silence is enough to chisel a leak into the dam of John's belief. Are you the one? Or have I been following the wrong God? Now, if the Bible had been written by a public relations agency, they would have eliminated that part. It's not good PR to admit one of the cabinet members has doubts about the president. You don't let stories like that get out if you're trying to present a unified front. But the scriptures weren't written by agents. They were inspired by eternal God who knew that every disciple from that day forward throughout history would spend time in the dungeon of doubt. And though the circumstances have changed, the questions haven't. And so what's Jesus' answer to John's agonizing question from the dungeon of doubt? Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Look carefully at how Jesus responds in Matthew 11. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, And the poor have good news preached to them. But before you study what Jesus said, note a couple things he didn't say. First, he didn't get angry. He doesn't throw his hands up in disgust. He doesn't respond like me. He didn't scream. You know, could have easily said, what do I got to do with this guy? You know, I've already become flesh. I've been sinless for three decades. I let him baptize me. What does he want? Go and tell that ungrateful locust eater that I'm shocked at his disbelief. He could have done that. Sounds like something I would have done. But Jesus doesn't. Underline that fact. God never turns away the questions of a sincere searcher. Not Job's, not Abraham's, not Moses, not John, not Thomas, not Dave, not you. But note also that Jesus doesn't save John. The one who walks on water could have easily walked on Herod. But he didn't. The one who cast out the demons had the power to cast the king out of the castle. But he didn't. There's no battle plan. There's no angelic SWAT teams. There's no flashing swords. Just a message. A kingdom message. Tell John everything's going as planned. The kingdom is coming. And Jesus' words are much more than just quotes from the prophet Isaiah. They're a description of the heavenly kingdom to come, a unique kingdom, an invisible kingdom, a kingdom with distinct traits and characteristics. First of all, it's a kingdom where the rejected are received. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear No one is more shunned by their culture. No one is more picked on by bullies than the blind, the lame, the lepers, and the deaf. They had no place, no name, no value. Canker sores on the culture. Excess baggage on the side of the road. And those for whom uh, the people called trash, Jesus calls treasures. Jesus told John, a new kingdom's coming A kingdom where people have value, not based on what they're able to do for you, but based on who they belong to. Second distinct trait of the kingdom is as potent as the first. And the dead are raised up. The grave has no power. John looked in the eyes, or Jesus looked into the eyes of John's followers. He's in a dungeon of doubt, a dungeon of death. And he says, report to John, the dead are raised up. Jesus isn't oblivious to John's imprisonment. He's not blind to John's captivity. But he's dealing with a greater dungeon than Herod's. He's dealing with the dungeon of death. And he's not through. Because he passes on one more message to clear the doubt out of John's mind. And the third trait of the kingdom is simply this, and the poor have good news preached to them. And even though by the book, I'm guilty by God's grace. I get another chance. And even by the law, I'm indicted. By God's mercy, I get a fresh start. We read in Hebrews 4, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's what we need to do. That's what all those prayer requests are about. Going to the throne of grace to find mercy and grace. No other religion offers that message. All others demand the right performance, the right sacrifice, the right chant, the right ritual, the right experience. There's the kingdoms of trade-offs and barterdom. You do this, God will give you that. The result is either arrogance or fear. Arrogance if you think you achieved it on your own, and fear if you think you didn't. Remember, Herod lived with overwhelming fear. But Christ's kingdom is just the opposite. We read in Ephesians 2, 4, by grace... You've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Christ's kingdom is a kingdom for the poor. It's a kingdom where membership is granted and not purchased. You are placed into Christ's kingdom. You are adopted. This occurs not when you do enough, but when you admit you can't do enough. You don't earn it. You simply accept it. And as a result, you serve Not out of arrogance or fear, but out of gratitude. Unique characteristic of Christ's kingdom is subjects don't work in order to go to heaven. They work because they're already going to heaven. And arrogance and fear are replaced by uh, gratitude and joy. And that's the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed. a kingdom of complete acceptance and eternal life and total forgiveness. And we don't know how John received Jesus' message, but we can imagine And I like to think as he heard the message from Jesus, a slight smile came over his face as he heard what his master said. So that's it. That's what the kingdom will be. That's what the king will do. And now he understands. It's not that Jesus was silent. It's that John had been listening for the wrong answer. John had been listening for an answer to his earthly problems, and Jesus was busy solving his heavenly ones. The fact is, John wasn't asking for too much. He was asking for too little. He was asking the Father to resolve the temporary where Jesus is uh, busy resolving the eternal. John's asking for immediate favor. Jesus is orchestrating grace for eternity. That's worth remembering the next time you hear the silence of God. If you've asked for a mate, but you're still sleeping alone. If you've asked for a child, but your womb is still empty. If you've asked for healing, but you still hurt. Don't think God isn't listening He is, and he's answering questions you're not even asking or making yet. Now, does that mean that Jesus has no regard for injustice? No. He cares about persecution, and he cares about hunger, and he cares about prejudice, and he knows what it's like to be punished for something he didn't do. He knows the meaning of the phrase, it's just not right, because it just wasn't right that people spat into his eyes, and it wasn't right that soldiers ripped chunks of flesh out of his back, And it wasn't right that spikes pierced his hand. And it wasn't right that the Son of God was forced to hear the silence of God. It wasn't right, but it happened. And while Jesus was on the cross, God sat on his hands and he turned his back and ignored innocent screams and sat in silence where the sins of the world were placed on his Son. And in a world of injustice, God once and for all tipped the scales in favor of grace and mercy, hope and love. And he did it so that we could know the king and his kingdom. John the Baptist sat in a dungeon of doubt as a captive of a king. He took his doubts to Jesus and Jesus answered him, Tell John, everything's going as planned. The kingdom is coming. And so John the Baptist died in a dungeon of death, but he died in faith as a captive of the king. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you've given us a king. In this passage, we see your son. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for this passage, as dark and difficult as it is, for there's no work of yours which will not ultimately make sense in the light of glory. Help us then to trust you until that day. Help us to live as captives of the true king. And as always, help us to know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. You will sing that at my funeral. In Isaiah 25, Isaiah prophesied that victory would swallow up death. And he was talking about Jesus. And on the cross, Jesus swallowed up death and death's power was broken, and death no longer gets the last word. Victory gets the last word because Jesus rose again from the dead. It didn't hold Him. It won't hold you either. Every funeral I've ever done has started with this verse. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. God bless you. We'll see you next week.